welcome to another Saturday stream. I am your host, Joe Magician, and today we're going to escape the shadow binders of a shy who may or may not have been hot on my trail for revealing their secrets last week. And instead, we're going to go ahead and piss off another shadowy group of killers. That's right. We're going to expose the truth behind the faceless men and the house of black and white. I mean, what, what could go wrong with that? Coincidentally, I did get a like it's this really cool gold coin yesterday and you know I've been meaning to bite it make sure it's real gold but you know that's that's a normal thing people do but that's not suspicious right nothing bad will happen if I try and do that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no big deal no big deal at all <laughs> moving on before I realize the terrible terrible fate that awaits me if I ever do bite that coin let's talk about the faceless men of Bravos the guild of master assassins who have a very, very confusing name. Why is it confusing? Because they are not actually, you know, faceless. They have a giant warehouse of faces they can try on like it's the men's warehouse. And George Zimmer is telling you if you, that you'll like your new face. He guarantees it. Exactly how dated is that reference chat? How many of you actually got the George Zimmer men's warehouse joke that I just told? I'm guessing it is not a lot. <laughs> I think I just like cut off an entire generation of people who just don't know what the hell I'm talking about right now. <laughs> nice, nicely dated. Just like a men's warehouse suit. Hashtag not sponsored. Uh, so the quote I wanted to start off with is death holds no sweetness in this house. We are not warriors nor soldiers nor swaggering bravos puffed up with pride. Do not kill to serve some lord to fatten our purses to stroke our vanity. We never give the gift to please ourselves nor do we choose the ones we kill. We are but servants of the, of the God of many faces. Okay, so it went over a lot of your heads. <laughs> there were commercials back in the day for Men's Warehouse where the leader, I guess, of the, the CEO of the company, a guy named George Zimmer, he had this really smooth voice. If you've ever seen those like Dosa Keys commercials with the most interesting man in the world, he kind of looks like that. And he would talk about how great their suits are. At the end of it, he always say like, You'll like what you you'll like you what you get or whatever, and he he'll guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, living in Europe would probably cut you off from that one. That's really just a joke for older <laughs> Americans. Way to go, guys. Yeah, I think that's if we're talking about the title of the stream, there's gonna be we're gonna talk about kind of like a wide range of the faceless men, but they're such a broad topic. And just talking about talking about Aria or just talking about Jockin or just talking about faceless men themselves as an organization like each of those could be their like their own stream like trying to pull apart jack and hagar for what he's actually doing is kind of difficult you'll like the way you look i guarantee it thank you thank you that's the way it's gonna so this is gonna be sort of a we're gonna focus in on more what do they really want what are they doing in this story without getting too lost in the weeds with like Arya's story or that that kind of thing so I think before we get going, an important thing to talk about is what does George R. R. Martin think about the Faceless Men? Because when you talk about them sort of in the fandom, there's there's a lot of question marks around them. There's a lot of blanks you sort of have to fill in to even kind of understand what they're doing or what their goals are in the story. And yeah, there's a few quotes from George that I managed to find that I think really frame the discussion about them. They are so mysterious, so intriguing, so overtly magical and the kind of thing that fans love talking about that, of course, they have asked George about the Faceless Men many, 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 many times at Q&As, you know, web chats, emails, book signings, anything and anywhere and everywhere. Someone has asked George R. R. Martin 
about the faceless man and Jack and Hagar. And there's kind of a very consistent theme to George's answers. I was talking about this in the uh, patron slack earlier this week as I was putting this together. And it's that fans tend to put a lot more thought into the faceless men than George does. Now, that's not that uncommon. A lot of the if you read a lot of Q&A's and stuff like that about from George, where fans are asking him questions, a lot of the time it's like people pitching tinfoil. It's people asking really hard to answer questions of George and him kind of pumping the brakes on them, but not all the time. You know, quite a lot of the time you can get him to talk more about things. You can get him to give straight answers, that sort of thing. That's not really what happens when people ask him about the faceless men. So I pulled a whole bunch of questions. We're just going to read them out here. And I think you'll sort of get what I'm talking about as he answers these. So the question is, I am no, I know I am not alone in this. As my boyfriend tells me, there's much speculation on the discussion board he uses that a good half a dozen characters may be faceless men. Or indeed, the same faceless men. Answer from George. Some of my readers have livelier imaginations than I do. Well, I won't comment except to say that sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. So George is very politely saying, nah, like way over the top. Uh, here's another one. In Arya's first chapter, before she knows about Needle, John admonishes her to run back to Septimorb Dane if she does not want to sew through winter. When the spring thaw comes, they will find your body with the needle still locked between your frozen fingers. Is this foreshadowing? I really like Arya despite her dark path. I'm now terrified at the prospect that she may be turned into a white. Ooh, potentially the first faceless white at that. Ah! Answer from George. Again, no comments. Foreshadowing is another area where you're on your own. Here we go. Another one. I was wondering if you could tell me if you're on Crow's Eye is a faceless man himself or he simply hired a faceless man. Will we see more of Euron? He seems like a great idea for a character and I'd love to see you develop him some more. Answer. Euron is not a faceless man. Yes, you will see the crow's eye in a feast for Hey, wait. Hey, what a coincidence. So people are throwing like fan theories at him. He's just going just shooting them down one after another. Question from in a web chat from somebody named Eric's. Will there be a great revelation concerning some other faceless people besides Jock and George R. R. Martin. To Eric's, you will definitely learn more about the faceless men, but I don't know if you would call that a quote-unquote great revelation. Let's see here. He go in another answer. He goes on to say that no, there have not been any characters that have been both a warg and a faceless man, presumably before Arya. Question: Jock and in Harrenhal refers to a red god, and another occasion to the god of fire. Do you mean Rolor? Is this instruction with Arya with the faceless men? R'hllor does not seem to have any special importance. Answer. If you notice, it specifically refers to him when they are about to burn them alive. They are in a cage. They cannot escape. And they are about to burn them alive. So that's one him saying that no, Jockin does not serve R'hllor or a god of fire. That's sort of people are reading too far into it. Uh, question. Have the faceless men been hired to kill Danny's dragons? Answer. Not yet. So, yeah, there's a lot more questions and answers like this out there from George, but it's a it's fairly consistent that he shoots down a lot of tinfoil thrown at him about Jack and Nagar, about the faceless men in a way that he doesn't normally. A lot of times he'll just say, keep reading or he'll say something like, oh, very insightful of you. These are he's just saying no. <laughs> he's like, absolutely not. Get this out of my face. And I think that's really important to keep in mind as we sort of journey down this and explore it, that 
in Martin's mind, the faceless men are not a this crazy topic with like their fingers and everywhere and every character is a faceless man and they're running around like an army of guys waiting to kill people that like they're much more what they seem than theories suggest i guess is the way of saying it which is kind of a bummer because a lot of people like theorizing about the faceless men they like talking about how like a lot of these questions were like maybe they're involved with anything maybe they have eyes on blood raven maybe they're serving the others secretly and I think if you, based on these, if you ask George those questions, he would probably give you a frown and find a polite way of saying no. Cigar is poisoned. Oh my God. Yes. Just like the gold coins. Of course, that's how they did it. Bernie says, interesting because of the way the show skipped over their magic. Maybe we won't get it. Maybe it's deflecting. Maybe it's Maybelline. Oh God. I think the show definitely shortened the interactions with the faceless men, but I don't think they're off base in that they really did not show up in the last few seasons after Arya left them. That the, I think the, the level of importance that they showed for them is probably about right, based on at least what we're seeing here from George. But, you know, we'll get into that more. Oh, by the way, slam the like button. Uh, 150 likes, I'll put on my, my old magician hat. 175, put on the Gurm hat. And because last week I canceled on you guys, and I feel sorry about that, if we get to 200 likes on today's stream, I'll give you guys a shirt from my Threadless shop. Mallory linked it earlier in the chat. There's a sale going on anyway, but yeah, we'll give you something <laughs> to make up for the uh, missing stream, as it were. So, yeah, I, but going back to the idea that he tends to shoot down a lot of faceless men theories, I think in a sense that kind of shows that there's a almost a flaw in the writing about the faceless men, in my opinion. That, you know, they are supposed to be faceless. In, I mean, they're supposed to be mysterious in nature. You're not supposed to understand Jack and Hagar at first glance. You're not supposed to understand entirely what's going on. But I think they're probably a little bit too mysterious in the writing. And I'm guessing that it's after a storm of swords and after quite a lot of fan questions like these that George suddenly realized that, hey, I don't think my readers are catching on what I'm saying about them, what I'm saying about the faceless man. I mean, what he, I don't know what he says about his readers. Hopefully he loves us all as we deeply love him. Because, you know, it's not a good thing as a writer if your readers are coming to you asking questions about the characters and organizations and they are wildly and consistently divorced from clearly what you are intending them to understand about. I mean, it's good in the sense that it means that he captured people's imagination, that they find the faceless men very interesting and that there's more to investigate and they want to they want to see behind the curtain a bit more but the, i think there's a line that seems to have been crossed where people just aren't getting it in a sense at least from his perspective i think he accidentally pulled a jj abrams mystery box with the faceless men and i don't think that's what he intended at least based on his answers to a lot of these things and when you look at what happens in a feast for crows and a dance with dragons when Arya makes it to the faceless men well, what does he do? He drops a gigantic, a gigantic amount of exposition about the Faceless Men. With the conversation with Arya and her interactions with the rest of the organization, he basically spends something like, I don't know, there's a lot of Arya chapters, but almost all of them are exploring the Faceless Men in a way. <clears throat> and that's not usually, that's not that common for him. He generally likes his audience to pick up on things as they go and not have to spend quite this much time like throwing information at the reader so they understand what the hell they're what the hell he's trying to get across 
I mean, a similar example is probably a Joffrey and the, the cat's paw guy that tried to kill Bran in a Game of Thrones, where he, for quite some time after Game of Thrones was published, got lots of questions and like fan theories about like what happened there, who hired him. And he thought he made it clear. And it turns out that he didn't because people didn't get it. So he ended up writing it into the book. Literally, he had Tyrion solve the mystery and explain it to the reader. They also he also put it into well, Elio Garcia put it into the the Song of Ice and Fire app, basically saying that yes, Joffrey did hire the cat's paw. And I think that's kind of what's going on here. I know it's a bit of a bummer of a starting point, but I think I think it's important to sort of keep that in mind that the wilder the theories get about the faceless men, the more George sort of frowns and goes like, what? What what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good one, Paris. You're going to like the way I look at my Mr. Dad, 150 likes. I guarantee it. Beautiful. So again, to go to expand on this a little bit more, in a lot of cases, his gardening style is relatively seamless to the reader. You never notice the, how one thing links to another to another because it also it flows so well. It creates a sense of continuity that feels very satisfying. You know, it implies foreshadowing and planning that was that has been there since the very first books. And a lot of readers tend to misunderstand this. George's gardening style means that he writes vague stuff first and then he writes backwards to it. Like, for instance, one of the things for Lady Stoneheart is that in Game of Thrones, Catelyn comments that sometimes it felt like her heart had turned to stone. And later, oh my God, she turns to Lady, Lady Stoneheart. So as a reader, you see that and think, wow, this was all one seamless plan going back to a Game of Thrones. George always intended Catelyn to come back to life and start hanging and killing people left and right. Well, it's actually quite the opposite. Like the Red Wedding was not a part of the initial outline. Catelyn was supposed to go beyond the wall and die. And that was kind of going to be it for her. But George introduced the Red Wedding. He decided he wanted to resurrect Catelyn Stark. And then he went back in time and found the quote about he had used earlier about her heart turning to stone and said, oh, that would link it together in a way that would probably feel like I planned this all along. And it does. Andrew Belton says, I'll be honest, I don't enjoy the gardening style of story writing. It feels too scattergun, hit or miss. I think that's one of the cases, one of the ways it can fail. And I think the Faceless Men are part of that. You know, it, it's a scene that shows through with the Faceless Men. Their expansion and importance creates a lot of really uncomfortable and hard to answer questions about like, what can they do exactly? And why has why George hasn't come close to answering a lot of these? Like with Jack and Hagar in particular, I talked about this in my Thoros uh, stream that George later decided the red priests from the slave cities have tattoos area everywhere, and yet neither of the red priests we know, Thoros or Melisandre, have them, despite ostensibly being from slave cities. So he carved out an exception for them, but it's tr it's more or less retconning or covering up the fact that he didn't have that idea in the first place. And I think that's sort of what's going on with the Faceless Men. He's decided later a lot of this stuff about them that he didn't know early on. And that's why readers have a hard time putting it all together, because it's just not there yet. He was going to garden it later, but people sort of jumped the gun on him. I, I hope that makes sense. It's like he writes he writes really good retcons from his earlier books to fit with the current stuff. It's not one great big plan. And the Faceless Men going just from Jack and Nagar with Arya to what they are in the later books is just an enormous expansion of importance and information about them. 
that you I, you really can't you can't go back to the early books and then like pull out hints of the information that comes later it's like just not there which again i think leads into the reason that so many fans have really wild tinfoil about the faceless men it is r- relatively wide open in the early books like what the hell are they what is jack and hagar doing because it it's it's lacking basically oh i wanted to i'm sorry i wanted to say thank you to two paypal donations i got before the stream started i think only two hang on a second let me check oh no three thirty dollars from morally she said hey joe is currently at the citadel citadel not the citadel oh my god fans think that he is looking for a special book called the death of dragons if so once he finds it how do you think he will use his book as far as danny's dragons are concerned how much longer will the faceless men want to train aria and what do they hope to gain from aria's training hugs from mora I put this one in the doc already. I'm going to get to them later. Thank you very much, Maura. I appreciate it. Let's see here. Got another one from Danny McKay. Happy Saturday with East Sign right back at you, Danny. Thank you very much. And $10 from, I am not going to pronounce this right, but I am going to try. <laughs> you should have told. I think that's what uh, Glass Table Girl called herself for a while. Or she really liked the phrase, the Citadel. I forget why she did that. It might be on her Twitter or something like that. Uh, $10 from Ludmilla. I think that's your name. Awesome streams. Love them. Thank you for doing this through the quarantine. You're very welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed them. Oh my God. <laughs> YouTube chat is going crazy trying to prune out Shitadel. Oh boy. Yes, Maura, I will, I will get to that question. those two questions later. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I also wanted to say thank you to the two newest patrons, Kayla C and Eric Bison. I think Eric was in the chat already, maybe? I didn't see that one, but thank you guys for uh, signing up. At the Maester and Archmaester level. That's right. Archmaester Eric Bison. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that that's kind of a long winded way of saying that this stream is not going to be high on tinfoil. I'm not I don't personally think that there's a lot of like crazy faceless men Illuminati stuff going on that if you take George's answers that he's relatively telling you to what's on the page is what's going on. Not that there's not more to discover because obviously we haven't learned everything, but you know, I think it's unlikely that they have tentacles everywhere that are controlling everything, but there are much more limited part of the books than I think quite than a lot of fans want them to be because they sort of hit that really that sweet spot of mysterious, magical, and very intriguing. All right, so let's get going. Let's talk about what do the faceless men want? What are they after? What what is their whole what is their whole thing? Uh, so I talked about the uh, I talked about this a bit during the Doom of Illyria stream because it's really impossible to untangle the web that connects the Valyrian freehold to the faceless men. So I think it's best just to just let the Bravosi tell us the story. So this is going to be a very long section, a lot of reading. I pulled the entire Kindly Man Aria discussion from the uh, from the book. So I also want to mention that this is one of those rare times that don't really have to piece together from history a whole bunch of scattered information and a whole bunch of clues across multiple books, multiple characters, POVs, small lines. George just says it. He just has the Kindly Man say answer basically all the questions he's ever gotten about the faceless men in one chapter oh a super chat from the happy masquerader five dollars thank you really appreciate it okay but jack is definitely at the citadel to learn how to 
kill Danny's dragons and prevent a Targaryen restoration, right? We'll get to that one. I will note that George answered the question, has the Faceless Men been hired to kill Danny's dragons? And he said, no, but not yet. So maybe someone will in the future. <laughs> Who am I? No one. I am no one at all. All right, so here we go. This is the entire history of the Faceless Men told to us by the kindly man, by George R.R. Martin to yeah, answer all the many, many, many fan questions he's got about this. He said, the face, the moon singers led us to this place of refuge where the dragons of Valyria could not find us. Oh, no, I'm sorry. This is not from the kindly man. I'm sorry. This is from Denyo talking to Arya first. Kindly man's afterwards. Theirs is the greatest temple. We esteem the father of waters as well, but his house is built anew whenever he takes his bride. The rest of the gods dwell together on an island in the center of the city. That is where you will find the many-faced god. So that's a native Bravosi Denyo talking about the face, talking about the origins of Bravos. But here we go, directly from the kindly man's mouth. The tale of our beginnings. If you would be one of us, you would best know who we are and how we came to be. Men may whisper of the faceless men of Bravos. We are older than the secret city. Before the Titan rose, before the unmasking of Uthero, before the founding, we were. We have flowered in Bravos amongst these northern fogs. But we first took root in Valyria amongst the wretched slaves who toiled deep in the mines, who toiled in the deep mines beneath the 14 flames that lit the freeholds and nights of old. Most mines are dank and chilly places, cut from cold dead stone, but the 14 flames were living mountains with veins of molten rock and hearts of fire. So the mines of old Valyria were always hot, and they grew hotter as the shafts were driven deeper, ever deeper. The slaves toiled in an oven. The rocks around them were too hot to touch. The air stank of brimstone would sear their lungs as they breathed it. The soles of their feet would burn and blister, even through the thickest sandals. Sometimes, when they broke through a wall in search of gold, they would find steam instead, or boiling water, or molten rock. Certain shafts were cut so low that slaves could not stand upright, but had to crawl or bend. And there were worms in that red darkness too. Oh, thank you for the super chat, Joanne Evans. Appreciate it. Oh, super sticker. A nice doggy. Hey, okay, how's it going? Burnt and blackened corpses were off found in the mines where the rocks were cracked or full of holes. Yet the mines, yet still the mines drove deeper. Slaves perished by the score, but their masters, they did not care. Red and gold and yellow, gold and red gold and yellow gold and silver were reckoned to be more precious than the lives of their slaves. Our slaves were cheap in the old freehold. During war, the Valyrians took them by the thousands. In times of peace, they bred them, though only the worst were sent down to die in the red darkness. Didn't the slaves rise up and fight? Some did, he said. Revolts were common in the mines, but few accomplished much. The dragon lords of old Valyria were strong in sorcery, and lesser men defied them at their peril. The first faceless man was one who did. Who was he? Arya blurted before she stopped to think. <clears throat> no one, he answered. Some say he was a slave himself. Others insist, others insist he was a freeholder's son, born of noble stock. Some will even tell you he was an overseer who took pity on his charges. The truth is, no one knows. Whoever he was, he moved amongst the slaves and would hear them at their prayers. Men of a hundred different nations labored in the mines and each prayed to his own god in his own tongue. Yet they were all praying for the same thing. It was release they asked for, an end to pain. A small thing, simple. Yet their gods made no answer, and their suffering went on. Are their gods all deaf? He wondered. 
until a realization came upon him one night in that red darkness. All gods have their instruments, men and women who serve them and help them do their help them work their will on earth. The slaves were not crying out to a hundred different gods, as it seemed, but to one god with a hundred different faces, and he was that god's instrument. That very night he chose the most wretched of the slaves, the ones who prayed most earnestly for release and freed him from his bondage. The first gift had been given. Arya drew back from him. Killed the slave? That did not sound right. He should have killed the masters. He would bring them the gift as well, but that is a tale for another day. One best shared with no one. He cocked his head. Who are you, child? Oof, that was a lot. <clears throat> that was a lot of reading. God, it's like I'm making a video out here. So that is the face, that is the faceless men explaining for themselves to the reader what it, what are they all about? They are essentially a a death cult of sorts. They believe in they believe in the certainty of death and that they only they can release people from their from their suffering. Basically, that is the whole point of their revenge against the freehold. It's that they are creating an unimaginable amount of suffering among the slaves of Illyria. So they took it upon themselves to not only free the slaves from that kind of situation, but also to eventually end the Valyrians for their, essentially their crimes against humanity. So you could say it more or less in that sense. They find, play, they find societies or people that are causing massive amounts of suffering on others, and they take care of them, basically. And again, to summarize, if you missed the, the last few streams, the Faceless Men were created by the abject horror and removal of hope that existed for the slaves of Valyrian in their minds beneath the 14 flames. Or to paraphrase, to paraphrase Robert Frost in his poem, the only way out is through. The only way out for the faceless men was through the slavers and Valyria themselves. So that's basically the justification for why they took them out. Although there is something to that, and this is going to be a future video I'm going to talk about, but they do exist in a world that absolutely contains necromancy. So you, if you can be brought back to life and there are undead people running around all the time, then an organization that is dedicated to ending undeath kind of makes a lot more sense. And it sets the tone for the creation. They're a force of resistance against what they consider to be pure evil. That is not only literally magical, but like controls dragons and the greatest military and economic powers in the known world. It's really an impossible task for one person to take out something like that. It's almost like slaying the gods themselves. And it seems to be that's essentially what the Faceless Men did from the first Faceless Man onwards. George has answered questions about the Faceless Men. He says they are thousands of years old, that they are not a relatively recent invention. Like the Doom of Illyria happened 325 years ago or something like that. So the Faceless Men began in the mines and have been building up their power and help founding. And they probably existed before the founding of Bravos. So that's something to keep in mind. So also their role, as I was talking about in the founding of Bravos and the Doom of Illyria, the story of the founding is a relatively simple one. It's a escaped slave colony scenario. Group of slaves escape from Valyria. They are put on board a boat bound for Sothorios. And given what we know about Sothorios, that means almost certain death for those slaves. They revolted. They overthrew the crew of the boat. And on the advice of some moon singers, from the of the Jogos Nye, they sailed far north until they found the coves and caves north of Pentos, which they named Bravos. Alicia Kingston, I posit the Faceless Men helped found Bravos. I think 
I was about to get to that, but I think that's absolutely right on the money. I said there's a quote from George, how long have the faces men been in existence? Thousands of years if their traditions can be believed longer than Bravos themselves. So this kind of suggests that the organization of assassins known as the Faceless Men predate the founding of Bravos, given their success and how the House of Black and White has prominence in Bravosi society, more so than any of the other gods or anything like that. And their their seemingly tight relationship with the Iron Bank, which is inextricably part of Bravosi culture. I'm guessing, much like Alicia just suggested, that the slave revolt on the boat may have been perhaps started by the faceless men or enabled by them in some way. Uh, after a while, maybe as they were planning the doom, they began to help slaves escape so they would not be killed in it. But they also clearly left Valeria. Some may have been there to set off the doom, as it were. The suggestion is they killed the fire mages, which held back the sorceries, which then caused it to explode. But, you know, their headquarters must have been in Valeria before Bravos was founded. It no longer is, so they got up and moved. I think that would also suggest that they knew the doom was coming. They got out of the way. And it's another really good quote here that I found from uh, George, where he's talking about the inspiration for Faceless Men, where they came from. And listening to that whole long quote from the from the kindly man and listening to this history, I think it just tracks one-to-one. It makes perfect sense. I don't think he's changed much from this answer. So he said, you know, it's a common trope of fantasy that you have a guild of assassins. I was hardly the first one to invent the Guild of Assassins. You know, that's largely a fantasy trope. There's not much evidence for that in history. Well, the one evidence you did actually have is the group called the Assassins, who were in the Middle East, and there was a guy called the Old Man of the Mountains who would send forth his assassins to kill people in the Middle East, where they'd been killing people for many centuries. But they were not like a fantasy Guild of Assassins, so I decided to put my own spin on it. I actually came up with several different Guilds of Assassins, not only the Faceless Men, but the Sorrowful Men and all that. There's a little bit in the philosophy of the Faceless Men there. In some senses, they're a death cult, and it's a religious basis, which I kind of thought about and extrapolated from that. I'm surprised we don't have more death cults in the real world. Oh, George. He, this was written in the time before people decided they would die for the economy, um, because it seems to me if, you, if you're going to worship something, death is a pretty good thing, because you know, like, we have all these religions that promise you life everlasting. None of them ever deliver on it. Everybody in all the other religions die anyway. So the death cult is the one that wins. The death cult can really deliver death. Come worship with us and you will die. Yeah. Well, yeah, you probably will. So what the hell? I took that one and ran with it. So that's George more or less expanding on the idea that faceless men take it as a religious principle that they literally worship death. That they think there it's like a religious rite of of senses to return people to the void or whatever is out there that there's nothing else and i mean it's kind of strange death cults are a strange thing you see them sometimes in like suicide cults and that kind of thing it doesn't seem to be at least for him that's not it's not much more complicated than that it's he decided to make up a society of people that for religious reasons worship death and they take essentially jobs doing it because not only does it make them money but it also serves this larger purpose one that they learned in the uh, horrors of the Valyrian slave mines yeah kill the undertaker yeah not just uh die for the economy but the other masks and the vaccines and all that stuff like i think he was wrong about that death cults are making a comeback so sasuke says i wonder if there's any children of the forest or if a quevron 
in those mines of Illyria, although I don't know if the Faceless Men would be related to theirs. I would guess not. If Equeveron were pretty much left alone, and the Valyrians didn't really ever seem to make it to Westeros, except in very small numbers. But I would guess other fantasy races probably ended up in there, like the Ibanese and the Tall Men, all those sorts of near humans, the Brindled Men from Sothorios, everyone else. Everyone else they could find were meat for the grinder of Valyria. Barris Aurelius, possible the doom was caused by a giant creature, uh, something akin to what the dwarves did in Moria, Lord of the Rings, on a larger scale. You know, the worms are there, but is that what hurt that dragon? I talked about this during the Doom of Lyria stream three weeks ago now. I don't think that's what's going on. It seems pretty clear to me that the Faceless Men did it in the way that was suggested in the World of Ice and Fire, that they killed the Valyrian mages who hold back the 14 flames spells from erupting. They all exploded at once and took them out. And it makes perfect sense. The, the Faceless Men, like the Kindly Man is telling this to Arya in private. This isn't like, something they're going around telling anybody there's not really a lot to gain from even from lying about it i would i would take them at their word that the abject horror of the valyrian slave mines inspired them to essentially believe that life was life and people were horrible and that the natural state of all things is to die so why not just go ahead and do that anyway <laughs> although yeah i would love it if there actually was something deep underground. I said this during the Doom of Valyria stream, like, what if Relore is a real thing and he's like a giant demon that lives under Valyria and he just essentially uppercutted the volcanoes. Awesome. Love it. <laughs> so keeping all that in mind, like talking about the idea that they are basically a death cult, their, their basic ethos is they want to end suffering when they find it, whether that means offering euthanasia basically to the people having it, or to kill the people that are inflicting it on others. One way or another, they are trying to release people from the day-to-day -day horrors of life. That's sort of their thing. Oh, a uh, super chat here from Delphi Morphia. So why didn't the Valyrians ever conquer Westeros in the same way they did Essos? They probably would have gotten to it at some point. They did colonize it in small ways. Dragonstone was built before the Targaryens arrived. The Valarians live there, the Celtigars live there, but I think there's one thing that's kind of like a misunderstanding about Westeros, and it's that from the current storyline, they're great. Like everything's going awesome. They're like an economic power. Everyone cares about them. But before the Doom, like you compare a bunch of guys sitting in stone castles with their swords running at each other in the woods, like that is basically the backwater compared to the rest of Essos. The Valyrians were far more advanced. Their abilities to use magic and their control of the rest of the continent was far and away more impressive than anything going on in this in this strange society off to the west. And they didn't re they don't didn't need to travel that far. There were tons of people in Essos. There were tons of nations to conquer much closer by much easier to get to. So why go there? Why? You know, it's not like they were a world power that the freehold need to take out, they were basically not a threat. There is some tinfoil that maybe they were scared of the children of the forest, or as they tried to, the weirwoods sent them crazy dreams and that kind of stuff. It may have just been like more, more problems than it's worth sort of thing. Just like, eh, whatever. What do the Valarians and the Celtigars say about them? Oh, they're just a bunch of, bunch of backward dudes sitting in their castles, hurling arrows at each other. Meanwhile, we are creating vast palaces made of molten rock and we have our dragons and we're taking over essos and all this stuff it's like 
eh, don't worry about them. Eventually, the Freehold probably would have gotten to Westeros if they ever ran out of places to conquer in Essos, but that doesn't really seem to have been a problem for them. They basically went north, east, and west from Essos, but they were mostly focused on going east from that point. But they also wanted uh, parts of Sothorios and that kind of thing. Super chat from Smith Crazy. Hey, man, just want to say thanks for the chill chat. Case in point, we're talking about death cults and somehow that's relaxing. Hey, it's the, the smooth Joe Magician tones <laughs> talking about something as horrible as slaves killing themselves in mines because their masters are so horrific. And it's like, hey, man, having a good time out here. Yeah, good point, Alicia. Talked about that during the Doom of Illyria stream. They also knew to not get involved with prophecy with the lannister gold destroying valyria so i was like why why bother there's there's no reason to do it that's actually kind of one of the funny things when you play the crusader kings 2 game of thrones mod it's really westeros focused west if you conquer westeros you end up being able to knock over essos but if you ever play on the older bookmarks if you play back when the freehold was a thing westeros is nothing you get knocked over in like half a second the dragon lords show up and they wipe out your armies, melt your castles, and you become destroyed almost instantly. So it's kind of like the same thing. Oh, good point, uh, Barris Aurelius. The same argument for space aliens. Yes, perhaps they do exist, but based on the Drake equation, there doesn't seem any reason they want to come here. Like, yeah, it's like Independence Day. The, the whole thing behind that movie is that, you know, the aliens came to Earth because there's so many natural resources here and it's super valuable. But at the point that you can travel between stars, the ability to find water or whatever rare earth materials we have is trivial out in the universe. So it's like the same kind of thing. Essos is basically where things were at. Westeros is it's nothing. <laughs> it was nothing. It's only something now because the freehold is gone. So I think with that backstory, I think we should go ahead and talk about our boy, Jack and Hagar, the faceless man, the first one we meet. So we first meet the faceless man, of course, through the mysterious figure who introduces himself as Jackin Hagar. Whether or not that's his real name, I'm going to guess it's not his real name. It would be kind of strange if like a master spy and assassin gets asked who he is and he just says, oh, yeah, my real identity. That's probably not a thing he would do. If you watch, if you mean, if you read through the rest of Arya's chapters, she has a million names for herself and she doesn't actually learn the name of any of the other faceless men. She just calls them by their descriptions like the kindly man, the waif, that sort of thing. So I'm guessing this is also not Jackin's real name. <laughs> like uh, she introduces herself to people as Cat, and that's how people in Bravos know her, Cat of the Canals. No one knows the difference. They don't know she's Arya Stark. Whoever Jackin really is, That's I think that's just the name he said to Arya. And obviously Jackin is a true master of disguise. We see in the books, and they actually put this in the show too, you can essentially do this and come back with a completely new face. Something in seconds, just completely, his hair changes, his face changes. I don't think his voice changes, but that quickly he can. And that's the other crazy thing. So we know that they change their faces normally by putting them on. If he's turning around, he's essentially going like, with a very quick change, take one off, put one on, and then go back. I don't remember his hands moving in that scene, but who knows? I think this kind of puts him on it's almost a very different power level from the rest of the faceless men his ability to do this like he could turn a corner and look like someone else completely different and it's a skill that we don't see duplicated anywhere else in the story i think it's it's a bit odd that george does that the first faceless man we meet is objectively 
probably the best one. Can ever piece up here in the House of Bravo, says Nicola uh, Jorgen. Probably not. We know he's in Old Town and probably the Iron Islands. So I don't think he's gone back to the House of Black and White. I think that was a show thing because they cut out Jockin's role later. Although there is a time frame, but I don't think he I don't think he did. Maybe he has glamour gems he can activate. I don't think so. I don't remember any gemstones on him. I think it's just he has mastered being a faceless man so much that he can just essentially turn around and become a completely new person. Now we meet Jacken in Yorin's group of convicts on their way to the Night's Watch. Jacken is caged with Rorge and Biter, two parts of a super illegal underground bear and dog fighting organization. Rorge runs the the dog and the bear baiting, basically. And Biter, this was something I had forgotten about, and it was even more horrible when I remember Biter's role in the whole dog and bear baiting is that he would fight the dogs and the bears, and he would use his foul teeth to bite them. Awesome. Gotta love it. Oh, Super Chat from says, fantastic content, man. Love your insights. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Very sweet of you. We got a question here from Patreon. Oh, I'm sorry. I also wanted to say, that both are essentially terrified of Jockin, despite being horror shows themselves, and are subservient to him after their first meeting. Their time in captivity together somehow made them essentially his servants. I don't know. Eric Forg from Patreon says, What is Biter? Is he even human? It's no coincidence that Brienne hears Nimble Dick stories, only see one of the stories come alive and Biter face off. So the story of Biter is that Rorge found him as an infant and essentially trained him to become a pit fighter, more or less, in a Westerosi sense. He, this means torture. I'm going to guess this. This means that he would have him fight animals, other people. He's probably the one that filed Biter's teeth. He sort of treated him, like, honestly, fairly horribly. And this, these are the two kind of people that you'd expect Jockin to want to kill, based on what we were talking about earlier, about release from suffering and killing the person inflicting it. That he hasn't killed Rorge and Biter is something strange, but I think it also speaks to that he needs them for some things at this point that I think if he was free to essentially kill them, he would. But they're providing value as he goes about his stuff. Yeah, but George does like using stories and like weird legends and stuff right before the thing itself actually happens. Nimble Dick is a classic example of that. Actually, I talked about that in the Rob Stark coming back to life Red Wedding 2.0 Lady Stoneheart video, where I said that one of Nimble Dick's stories is about the Whispers, which is about a woods witch that kisses decapitated heads, and then they come back to life and talk. And I'm like, maybe that's foreshadowing for Rob with Lady Stoneheart. They find his head, she kisses it, aka gives it the, the kiss of life that R'hllor uses, and brings... Rob's skull or whatever's left of it back to life. A girl is a thousand name and one. Do faceless men kill without contracts? <sighs> well, it depends what you mean by contract. Do you mean can jacking kill somebody without approval or an official like paid contract from the House of Black and White? Yes, obviously he can. He does it for he does it for Arya with the three deaths thing. Although there is in a sense a contract, it's just not a monetary one. But Jacken is allowed to essentially do whatever he wants. So that's kind of the introduction to to Jack and he shows up in this cage. He's going along with Arya and Yorin. Eventually they end up assaulted. Arya throws an axe to them as they're about to burn alive. They escape, blah, blah, blah. But I think the thing that most people are confused about, and actually you guys are talking about in the chat as I am saying this, 
Like, what the hell's Jack and Hagar doing in this cage going to the wall? Why is a faceless man riding in a cage with these companions he said he didn't choose? If he's this mystical spy, super assassin guy, like, how the hell does he end up here? There's tons of theories and explanations about this. And honestly, they get they get pretty wild. The basic one that most people come to is that they work backwards from where Arya and Jack can end up and assume it's a plan going forwards. So you look at what he, what does he do while he's traveling with Arya? Well, he befriends her, ends up murdering people for her, and then offers to let her join the Faceless Man. So with no explanation from him about what the hell he's doing, essentially the theory goes, well, maybe those were all part of some plan in order to get Arya like him in order to go to the faceless men for some reason that it's essentially the idea that he allowed himself be placed in that cage in order to yeah in order to meet Arya on the specific journey that's that's like the least tinfoily version of these theories i think i explained it well oh we only only missing one more for the uh, wizard hat slam that mf and like button so there's a few reasons that i don't think that this one is true so the first one is well, there's other theories that Jaqen specifically joined Yorn in order to be in the group that's going north. The problem is that you do not have to be a criminal. You don't have to be in a cage to join Yorn. Oh, hot time. All right. The right way to put this on. Ah, <laughs> there we go. Thank you guys for slamming the like button. Really appreciate it. Remember, 175, I'll put on my Gurm hat, 200 likes on this stream. And I'll we'll be giving away a shirt to my threadless shop. So slam the like button. 205 people watching right now. Thanks for just spending part of your Memorial Day weekend with for me with me. Yeah, it's a it's a holiday weekend in America for you non-Americans out there. So, yeah, that's that's my biggest problem with this idea. You can join Yorin at any time. You do not have to be ostensibly a criminal to go with him. Like he could just walk up to Yorin and say, hey, I want to join the Night's Watch. Yorin is a recruiter. He would say. Oh, cool. This is what it's like. Jacken would say, great. That sounds like I, what, what I want to do. Congratulations. You're joining the Night's Watch. And he joins the he essentially joins the group on the way to the wall. There are people like that on their way there. Like um, Gendry is ostensibly on his way to join the Night's Watch. That kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I don't that part of it just kind of fails on a logic level for me. You do not. He does not have to do any of that if his goal is to make sure he's going north with Arya. Just follow her and join Yorin. Easy. Can do it. Reason number two. <laughs> Jacken literally almost dies during this trip. Uh, during the raid, the fire is lit underneath their, their cage, and he's literally about to burn to death. If Arya doesn't throw him that axe and let himself out, then Jacken Hagar was going to die. And not only that, he seems genuinely grateful for her help, and then offers to kill three people for her, explaining that, the Red God has been cheated from three deaths. So, I mean, like, if his plan involves almost dying, hoping that Arya likes him enough to throw him an axe, like, that's a pretty terrible plan. I, I don't know about that one. That one seems pretty crappy. The third one is that if you're, if you're trying to think about this from Jacken's perspective, this would take an incredible, like, superhuman level of predictive power to know that he needs to do this to, to get Arya to, to essentially help him. Because it would need to know ahead of time that number one, Ned Stark's gonna be arrested and sent to the Night's Watch. But then, not just that, he's then gonna be killed, which Arya is gonna see, and then she's gonna run into Yorin, 
who's then going to say, come with me, join the Night's Watch. You're going to pretend to be a boy. And that Arya is going to agree to that. And then you have to know that it's going to be that specific time and know that if you get put into the black cells, you will then be put into a cage, which will happen to go along with Arya. Like you cannot work backwards from this. This is like a crazy series of events in order to plan out ahead of time. At the point that Jacken or whoever hired him or whatever's going on with him in King's Landing could know all of the intricacies for winding up where he did in order to find and get to know Arya. Like at that point, you're better than like Melisandre and the ghost of High Heart in, uh, in predicting the future, you know? It, it, it requires just like, he has to know intimately everything everyone at court is going to do including joffrey in order to know that that's what he wants to do so i i don't think that one makes a lot of sense yeah he's he's basically like a prophet yeah let me be says not a plan just a bunch of happy accidents that's kind of what i'm leaning towards i don't think there's any kind of plan for jockin to get captured to get sent with yorin to get to know Arya. I think, well, let's just go over a few other, there's a bunch of other tinfoil theories about this. Like some of them are that he was going to be sent to the Night's Watch in order to assassinate Ned Stark along the way, since that was the actually the initial plan. Before Ned got his head chopped off by Joffrey, Varys had worked out a scheme that Ned was going to be allowed to join the Watch with Jon Snow. Joffrey kind of YOLO'd that one and took off Ned's head against everyone else's advice. Most people suggest that it was Littlefinger who got him to do it as revenge. Another one is that he needs to go to the wall for some reason, and he wants to join the Night's Watch. Again, I I don't see that one making a lot of sense. You can just join the Night's Watch as a free man. No problem. Jack and Midgar could walk up to Yorin and say, I want to be a Night's Watch brother. And he would say, cool, you're a Night's Watch brother. Let's go to the wall. That's bas- That basically does happen. I've also heard some pretty crazy ones. Like one of them was that he wanted to get captured and thrown into the black cells so that he could investigate them because Bloodraven was there once, like 70 years earlier. I I didn't quite catch that one. I I don't understand the logic on that. There's a whole bunch of other ones. Most of them involve like large-scale conspiracies where something about the children of the forest, something about Bloodraven. And this is kind of exactly what I meant when I was talking about like, Maybe George made Jacken's motives a bit too mysterious and open for interpretation because there's no, the fandom comes up with like these wild theories about it because it's like, what else are you supposed to believe? He's not telling you why he's there. I know, Alicia, it makes no sense. I People have said it re- like really argued for it. I'm just like, what, what are you talking about? Investigate what? What could Bloodraven have left behind in the Black Cells that it would be important for him to find? I don't, I don't get it. Actually, Sasuke... I think you or Sarah, you actually just picked up probably where I'm about to go with this. Gurm didn't think of a reason why he was there. He just had him start that way. Seriously, I think that's it. Perhaps he thought he'd think of a cool reason later, but never did. I think that's probably closer to the truth because there is no logical, really good logical explanation presented for what he's doing there. The only way that it kind of makes sense. Well, there's, there's two ways it makes sense. One, you have to have him be him and whoever got him into the black cells essentially having a total knowledge of all events about to follow that ends up with him next to Arya stark in a cage with Warge and biter and that being like a thing he wants to happen or the other thing is that it's there wasn't a plan and that it's a it's a series of happy accidents basically oh you guys slam past wizard tier we went straight 
full-on germ hat. But yeah, to reiterate, I really do think that this early part of Jacken's story, the Black Cells thing, George dropped the ball on it. There, there's no obvious answer why he's there. Eric Eric Ferg says, why do Biter and Warge follow Jacken so obediently? How did they all end up in the Black Cells together? Was Jacken hired by Littlefinger to kill Ned on the way to the wall? There's another one of the ones I was talking about. Why do Warge and Biter Jacken follow Jacken so obediently? I think the explanation is that he scared them, that he used his faceless men powers essentially and freaked them the hell out, threatened to kill them, that kind of thing. How do they end up in the, old, in the black cells together? I have an explanation for this. I don't think it's complete. I don't think there's probably, I think I know there's holes in it. I don't really know, but it's, it's the head cannon that I've come to that makes the most sense. So this is going to be, this is going to be a part of a future video, but this is basically what, what I think is going on. He did not mean, Jack and Nagar did not mean to be captured and shipped to the wall with Yorin. You know, faceless men are magical and they can change and change their disguises at a whim. But, you know, they're not superhumans. They're not like they that <laughs> what's another way of saying this? Like they cannot do impossible things. They are not impossible to catch. Basically, basically, all they can do is look like someone else and then they have to try and act like them. Like, for instance, when we get to Jockin being in the Citadel, he's disguised as Pate. But if you read him talking as Pate, it's pretty obvious that this is not Pate anymore. Like, he's changed the way he's talking. He's smarter than he used to be. He says things that Pate would never say about himself. Like, he says, I'm Pate, the big boy. Real Pate hates being called that. So if you know the person that a faceless man is pretending to be, then there's a really good chance you could figure out there's something wrong with them. Or there's something off. Like, for instance, I suspect that Marwin and a few of Pate's friends are beginning to wonder why Pate's acting weird all of a sudden. Right. They are not infallible. They are not perfect. And in particular, one thing that George loves talking about is like in A Song of Ice and Fire is essentially that like game recognizes game. Like mummers can recognize each other. They can recognize their craft. That's part of the reason Jacken sees instantly that Arya is basically in disguise as a boy. He's a master of disguise himself, and he understands when he's seeing somebody how their identity isn't matching their actions. That's the whole game of faces thing. Arya's failing at the game of faces to Jockin, which is how he kind of wait. What white what white white mug is about to fall down? This one, Aaron's mug. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you can see through disguises. That's what the game of faces is. It's the faceless men being trained to recognize each other out in the field and to recognize other assassins and people that are just that are being deceitful so there is a guy who's a mummer in the in the in king's landing at the moment and that is obviously varus he doesn't do this in the show quite as much but in the books he changes his appearance he changes his methods of speech he essentially acts like a faceless man himself throughout his uh, all of his chapters in king's landing to the point that people literally don't recognize him and they have to guess or he has to tell them, hey, it's me, Varys. <laughs> so I'm guessing if you just kind of put together a few things, you take the fact that Varys may be able to see through a faceless man's disguise as they are not infallible. But you also look at the fact that we learn about the faceless men from Littlefinger. Littlefinger is in small council and they're talking about trying to kill Daenerys and he Someone suggests, oh, hire the faceless men to go kill her. Hang on a second. <clears throat> Sorry. Bad cough right there. So Littlefinger says, what are you crazy? Do you know how much it costs? Like 
It would cost as much to kill a merchant as it would to hire an army of sellswords. That's the introduction of the Faceless Men, that they are a paid group of assassins. Well, what if the fact that Littlefinger knows how much they cost is not just exposition? Maybe it's it tells us something about why Jacken may be in King's Landing. That perhaps Jacken was there to meet with Littlefinger about a potential job, since he can take his own jobs. And maybe Varys somehow caught him or something like that. Also, I mentioned a quote earlier. Actually, I'm not sure if I did, but there's a quote from George where somebody asked him about the prices of the faceless men. And his response is basically like, they don't have like a pamphlet or like a list of prices for how much it costs for X person or X type of person to die. It's not like, you want to kill a king? That is 20,000 gold dragons or something crazy like that. His explanation is that when you go see the faceless men and you say, I want you to kill this person. They assess you and the target and what you're asking them to do. And they come back with a custom price basically for that. And then they, you negotiate the price. That's how he explains it. So Littlefinger is not speaking in abstraction. If he knows as the master of coin, he would know how much like mercenary companies are worth basically. So if he knows that and he knows how much it will cost for the faceless men to kill a merchant. Therefore, he has asked them, how much would it cost for me to kill a merchant? So I think that may be perhaps a hint to what exactly Jack and Hagar is doing in the Black Cells or in King's Landing in general. That Littlefinger or perhaps somebody else in the royal court was pricing out some murders from Jacken. For instance, we know that Cersei was, how, was trying to kill Robert Baratheon several times throughout a Game of Thrones that may have been on the table. Maybe something about the Iron Bank and the massive amount of loans that are owed to them from the from the uh, royal court, which would come obviously from the master of coin, Littlefinger. Anyway, so essentially the idea that there's a faceless man in the Black Cells after Littlefinger has inquired about how much their services cost kind of lines up in a in a way that I think you can is reminiscent of like the cat's paw thing with Joffrey, where I think that's the connective tissue that that the reader is supposed to draw from. But for a lot of people, it it just missed them because George didn't call enough attention to it. And my main reason for thinking that it has something to do with Littlefinger and Varys that the Jacken ended up in the black cells is because it doesn't assign like any kind of big grand conspiracy or strategy to Jacken that he's there on business and the business went wrong. That's like a thing you would expect to happen to spies over time. And from then on, after getting caught and put into the cage, he's not like testing Arya or following through some grand plan that the, that he's on. He's improvising and that he meets Arya while he's there notices that she's receptive and that there's something special about her. And also that she's pretending to be somebody else and befriends her in an attempt to get out of his cage, you know, that he doesn't want to be going to the wall. You know, that's that's a bit less epic, and I think that's perhaps a less less narratively satisfying, but I think it makes, like, at a base level the most sense. Why is, why is Jacken like Arya? Because Arya is a lot like him, that she's willing to be violent, she's willing to kill people, she's naturally a person that lends to being in disguise and hiding her identity. She's smart. She's observant. And for some reason, she's willing to talk to him, even though he's in a cage with, with Rorge and Biter, two horrific, awful people. So I think it's kind of like a, a friendship that's, that starts up 
not only just out of like the two of them liking each other, but also the fact that Jack needs to get out of that cage and Arya is somebody that can help him. That's I, I assume that a faceless man given enough time could escape from a cage on a on a carriage. But, you know, like I was saying, they are not perfect. They are not infallible. They are not like otherworldly beings. He still has to if he can't get out of that lock, then he can't get out of it. He's got to get somebody to let him out. And yeah, I, I and it also creates a relationship between them and it allows you to have characterization for Jock and Arya reflecting on each other, that one is like each that the other. Or that Jockin is like Arya further down the line, and maybe he's recognizing something in her that what that from what he was like as a younger person, that could be more narrowly satisfying than trying to piece together a giant web of actions that leads to him there. Yeah, it like Edward Martin has said, it is what it is. <laughs> you know, it's a series of random events. Jackin got caught, he had to get out of it. Arya's somebody that was open to it. Nobody else was too, so. And then once Jacken got to know her, he realized, oh, hey, this isn't just somebody that can help me. Maybe this is like somebody that we could recruit. Maybe this is somebody that would be a good faceless man in the future, especially when when he learns about like how she's totally OK with killing a bunch of people and all that other kind of stuff. That's my that's my theory. Anyway, that's my explanation for all that stuff. It's it's a I think this this harkens back to George's comments when he gets asked tinfoil about the face of Ben and Jack and where he always says where he consistently says like it's less complicated than you think it is and I think that that kind of works between them I hope that makes sense to you guys and also people wonder about the idea of why is he in a cage with Rorge and Biter and if you if you assume that maybe Varys caught him and know he's a faceless man well if you put him into a cage in the black cells with Rorge and Biter, which Varys is in charge of, then if he tries to steal their faces, he's not going to be able to get away easily because Rorge and Biter are unique looking, to say the least. That's right, Alicia. A girl has more bravery than sense. That's something the faceless men would want from a future assassin. Somebody that is brave and is willing to do things that a normal person wouldn't, which is Arya Stark. She's a very different kind of uh, person. So yeah, I know it's it's less fun than the crazy tinfoil it's it doesn't like inform some grand illuminati style thing but i think just based on what we have and that george clearly expected people to understand it just like based on what's on the page i think that's the one that makes most sense if you just follow their interactions why were they only ones in the cage and well jackin's dangerous but also so are rorge and biter biter would bite your face off rorge is a murderer and obviously quite dangerous himself so I'm guessing they didn't want them to try and like bite their face off or slit their throats in the night before they got to the Night's Watch, that kind of thing. So let's go ahead and switch gears a little bit and we'll talk about Jacken's other jobs that he's had in uh, A Song of Ice and Fire so far. He's apparently, he's a multitasker, let's say it that way. Uh, he has two other jobs in Westeros at the same time. The first is that he's apparently been contracted by Euron Greyjoy to kill his brother Balon. I find this one pretty confusing so does a lot of a fandom i think george's foreshadowing and what he's put on the page is supposed to lead you to it but it's one of those things where people have trouble have trouble believing it because it asks a lot of very strange questions about the faceless men like so for instance from the ghost of high heart this is the main piece of evidence i dreamt of a man without a face waiting on a bridge that swayed and swung on his shoulder perched a drowned crow with seaweed hanging from his wings eric f also asked was it jack and hagar the faceless man who killed Balon Greyjoy would be interesting to see his reaction as Euron destroys Old Town. Yes, it's very. It seems quite clear that this was Jack and Hagar. 
George has said there aren't other faceless men in Westeros at the moment. So after leaving Harrenhal, Jacken went west, found his way through the Iron Islands, and then killed Balon for Euron. So the first problem we have is Euron, as far as we know, has not been anywhere near Westeros in quite a few years. So when exactly did he hire Jack and Hagar to do this? And also there's the weird fact that Euron shows up at the Iron Islands a day after Balon dies. So how does he know to do that? Does he have some way with being in contact with Jacken, or did they schedule it for a particular day? Like on June 26th, you, Jack, you, the faceless men will kill Balon Greyjoy. It has to be that day because I'm going to show up the next day on my ship. Which is actually kind of funny if you think about it that way, where he's like, imagine if he shows up back at the Iron Islands and Balon's still alive. It's like, oh, shit. But it, it assumes quite a lot of coordination between Jacket and Euron that they either they're communicating while Jacket is somehow in Westeros and Euron isn't or there is a plan set up ahead of time. I'm guessing that the explanation here is that Euron has paid the House of Black and White in Bravos. And they sent like messages through traders to Jack and in Westeros. And it's just like, like something out of Mission Impossible where it's like this, this message will self-destruct in 30 seconds. Your mission is to kill Balon Greyjoy on June 26th. I think that's the, the most logical explanation for how this works. Jack and hangs around ports or places where Bravosi traders come through. Every once in a while, they have messages for him for missions to carry out in Westeros. One of them happened to be this because otherwise, if it's not that, then the, the explanations get really crazy, really fast. You get into glass candles, you get into like skin changing, you get into green sears and stuff like that. And as George previously threw cold water on a lot of theories about the faceless man, I'm going to go for the low tech one that that Jacken is essentially a permanent faceless man in Westeros, and he can sometimes get messages from the House of Black and White, and this was one of them. Essentially, Euron showed up, paid them, they sent out the mission to Jack and to pull off. Again, not a sexy explanation, but I think it's one that's fairly simple and makes sense. So problem two, actually, Nicola just said in the chat what I was about to say, what did Euron pay with? We know from within the House of Black and White that they have piles of gold. They have more gold than they know what to do with. It's very likely that the House of Black and White and the Iron Bank, the gold in there is funded by the same thing. This is like just a, like a small tinfoil, but I'm guessing that there's like a symbiotic relationship. Somebody wants to kill somebody from the Faceless Men. They don't have enough money. They go get a loan from the Iron Bank. And it just works like that as like a, as a scheme, basically. So you, we know the Faceless and Littlefinger says the same thing where they charge like a mountain of gold for what they do. So they normally take their payments in gold. and. This also suggests the idea that Euron paid the House of Black and White directly because Jacken does not have a mountain of gold in a carriage behind him that he's lugging around. So yeah, that indicates that Euron went to Bravos most likely and paid them. And then the mission was communicated to Jacken somehow. Uh, so what did he use to pay them? The simplest explanation is that he has used a lot of gold. When we see him at the King's Moot, Euron has a hilarious amount of gold and plunder that he shows to the, the captains of the Iron Fleet to essentially bribe them into making him king. We learn that he does this because he does not particularly care about the gold and plunder. He likes being a pirate and acquiring a lot of gold is a byproduct of doing that. So it's entirely possible that he showed up to the House of Black and White and he said, kill Balon Greyjoy. And they said, we want an entire ships full of gold. And Euron's like, I have that and just handed it over. The other possibility, the fan theory, is that he paid them with a dragon egg. 
there's a quote where Euron said that he had a dragon egg at one point and in a black rage, he threw it into the sea. Some have suggested that instead of doing that, he actually gave the dragon egg to the faceless men since they are super valuable. And that's what he paid with. Either one works for me. The gold one is definitely answered by the king's moot that his attitude towards wealth and the amount that he has suggests that he probably could pay for a hit on Balon in cash if he wanted to. Dragon Egg works too. He does mention it. It's a weird thing to mention if it doesn't narratively mean anything. So yeah, the, the, <laughs> that, that kind of makes sense. So it why did Euron pay the Faceless Men to kill Balon? Clearly he had a plan where he was going to show up and essentially pretend to be a god and become the Iron King or the King of the Driftwood Crown or whatever it's called. And to do that, he needed to kill Balon. He had the money. He's around Bravos. He hires him. He did it. That's why he did it. Makes a lot of sense. The hard one is his second job, especially if you're trying to track his movement. So he starts in King's Landing, goes up, goes up the uh, the King's Road, escapes, goes to Harrenhal, joins the Lannister troops, leaves, goes to the Iron Islands, kills Balon, then escapes from the Iron Islands before anyone realizes Balon is dead because we know that they lock down the port. Uh, Lord's Port, I think it's called, after Balon's death. And then he makes his way from the Iron Islands all the way down to the Citadel. He has been a busy, busy, busy man. So, yeah, what the hell is he doing at the Citadel? San Rixian, she asked this question. What is Jacken up to in Old Town? Is he gathering info to take down Danny's dragons or something else? So some, if you guys didn't catch this on your read through, this is, I guess it's technically a fan theory but it's it's a it's a very low stakes one if it, if you can even call it that i think it's just canon in the feast for crows prologue we meet Pate the novice he's trying to creepily buy the virginity of a barmaid he's obsessed with named rosie and it costs a golden dragon Pate doesn't have a golden dragon he's afraid that he's not going to get to have sex with this girl that he's obsessed with and it's very odd and I, I don't like anything about it but he meets a guy called the alchemist who claims if he gets him the key from archmaster wallgrave which is essentially a skeleton key that will open any door in the citadel the alchemist will give him one gold dragon which then he can use to buy the girl's the girl's virginity gross not cool pate don't do that it ends up happening in the feast for crows prologue pate delivers the key the alchemist gives him the gold dragon kate bites the gold key to see if it's gold the coin is actually poisoned pate dies and then Jacken, off screen, skins Pate's face and becomes Pate. Interesting that George did not show us Jacken skinning his face or what he did with the body. It's just gross. Although maybe that will come up in the Winds of Winter chapters for Sam that they found that a random body without a face showed up into the Citadel or something like that. So Jacken reemerges after this in Samuel's chapters. He's pretending to be Pate at this point. He has decided he's going to hang around Archmaster Marwin. So why is he doing this? What's the point of Jack and Hagar killing Pate, taking his face and gaining entrance to the Citadel with a key, a key that can apparently open anything in the Citadel? Hmm. All right. So option one, we have the idea that he's doing this for the face. It's mentioned by Tyrion that there's a rare book in the Citadel vaults that nobody can see called The Death of Dragons or Blood and Fire, I think. It supposedly contains secret dragon lore, how to kill them, their biology, that kind of stuff. And it's the only copy in the world and the Citadel has it. So the idea goes that if the Faceless Men got paid with a dragon egg from Euron Greyjoy, maybe they want Death of Dragons to learn to hatch it or how to 
do something like that with it. This one I have a hard time with because I guess it would help, but we don't know what's in the book. And you have to assume that they actually have a dragon egg and that they want to hatch it and that this book contains that information. But it's just sort of it's solving the problem, basically. We know there's one really rare crazy book in the citadel jack happens to be there maybe that's his goal for some reason it works with the other theory in that way uh second theory about what is going on with jack and at the citadel is that this is a continuation of euron hiring him maybe euron is after the same rare book for instance we know that euron wants to marry danny and that he wants to essentially become a valyrian dragon lord at this point he's dressing himself like one he says he's been to valyria he has the dragon binder horn he wants to, yeah, he basically wants to be a evil Valyrian sorcerer or just, I, I don't think you even have to say evil Valyrian sorcerer, just Valyrian sorcerer because they were evil. Maybe for some reason Euron thinks that in that book that there's instructions on how to use dragon binder or maybe instructions on how to tame dragons or use magic to bend them to your will or something like that, or some knowledge about their biology that will make it easier for him to acquire a dragon in some way uh, oh okay i guess that's that's one but the the thing here is that euron is basically the only other known employer of jacken in the book so far we have no idea why he's in king's landing other than a hint that maybe Littlefinger had him show up there so i don't think you can dismiss the idea that jacken is there to steal this book in order to deliver it to euron yeah max l the old town prologue so Bentley blatantly written uh written with foreshadowing for dragons arriving there it seems too obvious right that's another part of the the explanation for the theory perhaps that could be it i think another sub theory of the euron sending jack in the citadel to the citadel thing is that maybe he's there to sabotage old town ahead of the ironborn invasion for instance the ironborn are on their way to essentially sack old town at this point they're at the shield islands they're all over the Red Wine Strait. So if you've ever read Or Quentin's Eldric Apocalypse, I had him on a while back talking about Euron Greyjoy. The idea is that he's about to sack Old Town. Having an, a faceless man on the inside could allow them easier access by maybe killing some guards ahead of time, assassinating like commanders of the of their army or something like that, opening doors that would make it easier for them to get in, that sort of thing. Those two kind of go hand in hand. The basic theory is that Euron has, this is a continuation of the contract on Balon's life. Option three, that maybe Jacken is there to kill somebody. He is an assassin. That's basically what we've seen him do. Actually, the idea that he's there as a thief is not really something we've seen from him before. Everything he's done before is just kill people. So like the null hypothesis is why is he in Old Town? There's somebody within the Citadel that he's there to kill. I don't know who that would be. What will be the target of something like that? You can maybe take some some hints from the fact that after becoming Peyton and entering the Citadel, what does he do? He hangs out with Marwyn the Mage, who is a believer in all sorts of magic things. He's been to a shy. He knows all this crazy stuff. I don't know. Maybe he's there to kill Marwyn or there's some other Archmaester or something like that. The idea of Maesters dying are pretty prevalent in Samwell's chapter where Jacken shows up. So I think those are the three basic options. I mean, there's some more tinfoil ones. Those are the ones that make the most sense, though. You guys are talking about that you don't think they would want to have dragons. I, that's the other problem with it. Like, why would they do that? Why would they bring back the dragons willingly? As George said, they haven't been hired to kill Danny yet or her dragons. So 
I don't really know. This is another one of those kind of mysteries that I imagine we're going to get into the Winds of Winter because Jacken's going to be on the page a lot as Pate. It's very likely that we're going to see him in action constantly throughout the Winds of Winter as long as Sam Wells in, is in Old Town. He's the only POV there. So <clears throat> one leads into the other. So maybe we'll finally get some clarity on like Jack and Hagar and what he's doing, what his missions are, just kind of by accident. Sam won't understand it, but we, the reader, knowing this is Jack and could use it to try and understand him a little more. Although one thing we shouldn't overlook when we're talking about Jacken is that he just heard from Samuel Tarley that the others have returned, that he killed one, that the they're marching on the wall, that the wall's going to fall, and that everything's fucked in the far north. He was in the room pretending to be Pate when Sam said all of this. Why Marwan let him do that is another question. But how he reacts to this could be very, very interesting. For instance, like, Marwin hears all this information from Sam and gets on a boat and goes to and sails away to go find Daenerys to bring her back. What would Jack and Hagar do when he hears about this? I don't know. They're, the interactions between the, between the Faceless Men and the others or anything like that is totally unknown. But that's certainly interesting information. He also has information. I mean, he also has access to a glass candle now. So maybe he could call home, call back to the house of black and white. Guys, guys, it's me. It's Jack and Hagar. I mean, Pate. I got to tell you this crazy shit I just heard. The long night's coming. It's real. We're fucked. Something like that. You know, a death cult might be quite interested in the long night falling again. The return of the Valyrian dragon lords and Danny and her and her dragons. You know, this is all information that the faceless men now know and will react to. Ooh, we are running out of time. We hit 200. Oh, thank you guys for slamming that MF and like button. So there's a lot of questions about why they recruited Arya. <clears throat> I sort of went over this a little bit, but we know from a very young age that she is violent. She's an enthusiastic fighter. She's totally willing to kill people. She has a list of people she wants to kill. She's adept at pretending to be someone else and adopting identities. She's very observant. And yeah, it seems like in every single way, Arya Stark as a person is somebody the Faceless Men would totally want on their side. It seems like George has written her to become an assassin in the future. You know, even if she wasn't highborn, even if you know nothing else about her as a person, these are all the traits that would go into the recruitment of somebody that would become a future faceless assassin. You know, they pride themselves on recruiting these kind of emotionalist murderers for hire and people that can act as spies and blend in anywhere. These are all valuable skills. So I am guessing that's what made Jacken decide, hey, we should make Arya Stark a faceless man. Because regardless of the fact that she's highborn, it's like she has everything we want. This is great. I also like this explanation a little bit better than like any kind of like grand plan or like large conspiracy about Arya becoming a faceless man because it makes it more about her. It makes her about her traits as a character, how she interacts with the world what she thinks and what she wants and less as a puzzle piece to a theory. Basically there's other potential reasons. For instance, George said in those Q and A's that there's never been a warg faceless man before. So perhaps the faceless men or Jack and after realizing that she is a skin changer and a warg, we're like, Oh, we've never had one of those. I wonder what they can do. She's also pretty much an assassin. Anyway, this works out really good for us. Maybe we can train her up and see what she can do. Like, is it useful for us to have to try and acquire wargs? Is that something that helps us as an organization? Perhaps like maybe she's like an experiment for them. They're like, OK, 
So what happens now? Like, can she become like, did she control her wolf from across the ocean? If you guys weren't aware of this, the faceless men do know that Arya is a skin changer and a warg because she growls in her sleep when she's skin changing Nymeria. I think John does this too. It's implied that they have noticed these sort of things already. Oh, $5 from Daniel B. Could the phrase hire the faceless man Arya to kill Stoneheart? Oh, that would be, that would be intriguing. The phrase might have the money to do it. I don't know if they, I don't know. That'd be, that would be a really, really good way of forcing Arya to confront her identity and her family. It's also widely assumed that part of Bloodraven's success as the master of whispers and essentially ruling the realm for as many years as he did is that he used his skin changing abilities. You know, he has a thousand eyes in one. Well, the Thousand Eyes refer to spies. He has a spy network, but he probably also could skin change the ravens that the maesters use and perhaps read letters he's not supposed to see, or he could use them to sit in on conversations. We pretty much know that's what he's doing with the raven with J.R. With Mormont, so perhaps he did that on a much larger scale. So maybe this is something the Faceless Men are interested in. It's like, this is just like a cool thing. Maybe we can try it out. A Guilty Undertaker notes. Yes, you asked a bunch of questions about this. Yes, the kindly man promotes Ari after she's getting changed as a cat. So they are totally aware of it. And it seems like something they're encouraging. But I think it goes, I think people assume it goes, she's Arya Stark and a skin changer. Therefore, they want her as an assassin. I think it goes the other way, where it's, she has a lot of really good traits as an assassin. Also, she's highborn and she's Westerosi. And she's a skin changer. Wow, we hit the jackpot on this recruit. You know, they're kind of just sort of testing her out. Oh yeah, here's the question. It stands out to me that Arya is promoted and given her eyesight after she demonstrated an ability to skin change cats. Do you think the faceless men knew about Arya's abilities and recruiting her for them, similar to Blood Raven Brand? Actually, I just answered that one. Whoops a daisy. Uh, yeah, I think it's just like a bonus for them. They liked Arya already, and they were like, oh cool. We get to figure out what she can do, taking away her sight and that sort of stuff. Alan Thompson, very, very terrifying a training. Exactly. Skin changing is really crazy. So the other question about Arya and the Faceless Men is, is she going to become no one? And I got quite a few questions sort of on this vein. And I don't think that can happen within the story. Because if Arya becomes no one, if she loses her identity and her hold on her family and the things she cared about before joining the house of black and white, then she's going to stay in Bravos forever. She's going to just become another one of the guys in the council that kills people, you know, with the taking orders, cleaning bodies, skinning faces and all that stuff. And may, that would be fine if the story was only about Arya, but it's not. The story is about her returning to Westeros at some point and interacting with her family. Therefore, as a pra as a logical consequence, she can never become no one because becoming no one would mean she would never go back. So George has to have her reject it. It's also like the most interesting part of her story. The fact that she's trying to deal with these traumas and deal with the people she's left behind and her list versus trying to fit in with the faceless men like that tension leads her back to Westeros. Therefore, she will never become no one. Her 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 end state will probably always be as a failed faceless man but she will have their skills that sort of thing and actually that's something george could set up to use in the future like perhaps that the faceless men are not a fan of Arya leaving the organization behind like they are in the show where they essentially gave her a high five for killing the waif and said yeah go do whatever you want to do 
they may not be totally cool with her leaving the organization, you know? So that could be something. I would guess that Arya is not going to go home on their permission that she's going to leave and they're not going to be super happy about it because why would they be? Like they've told her a lot of secrets. They've gave her skills. They put effort into training her like her just running off to do whatever she wants is not probably what they are interested in. Yes, failed in ideology, not in skill. Correct. A kind of like an unchained maester sort of thing. Except unlike the maesters, the faceless men are actually a murderous bunch of assassins. So watch out for that one. Like if you wanted to try and imagine how like the Waif versus Arya fight would happen in not a terrible way where she's running around like the Terminator, it could be that Arya leaves the house of black and white and is and the waif tries to stop her to essentially like stop from revealing their secrets or something like that uh, so one other thing is about sort of the other faceless men like what exactly can they do are they like the relationship to jack and it seems like the rest of the faceless men are nowhere near as skilled as jack in anything like when jack turns around and changes his face no one else can do that except basically the kindly man the rest seem like they're essentially just like really good actors or excellent cosplayers or they're really good with makeup like one guy can put on fake noses another one can give himself boils another one can appear sick that kind of thing it's just like putting on wigs or changing your clothes it's essentially what Varys is doing and most of the other books where it's just being a good actor and it's not so much the ability to change their faces maybe they can but that hasn't really been shown off to us i'm guessing that within the faceless man there's like different levels of competency and Jackin's at the very top and there's like a whole level like rungs beneath sort of like a uh, boy scout badges <laughs> like Jackin's a no one scout or something like that. Oh, another five dollars from Daniel. Some people that Jackin or very few faceless men have the abilities Jackin has. I think the idea is that Arya has the same potential as Jackin. That is an excellent way of saying what I was trying to say that yes, Jackin is special and different. And that he recognized skills he has that Arya has. And that's why he decided to recruit her. That she he thinks she has a ton of potential within the organization. Uh, she'll get Needle back before she leaves Bravos. It's like Theseus's sword. Stays on the swoon until she's ready to receive it. I think she has it in the Mercy chapter. I think she retrieved it already. But yes, I think that's true. $5 from Candide. Canide? Oh no, five pounds. No, euros. Thank you. What do you think about the age adjustments they made to the show? I try to imagine a 10 year old girl, but I can only see puberty Ari Assassin. I like the fact that the show aged up the characters. I wish George had done that too. It's going to get really uncomfortable in the Mercy chapters when a 10 year old girl is trying to essentially seduce a guy. It would have worked a lot better with the five year gap. George was right in the idea that his character should be older, but he never did it. So now we have to deal with all these like uh, very weird things like this, which are not not fun. Don't like them. It also, in some ways, breaks the immersion a little bit that like this is going to be like a 10 year old girl who's going to become a master assassin. Apparently, generally, that kind of thing takes years and years and years of training. But she's just going to learn to do it because George needs her to. A time, yeah, a time jump, Daniel, would be good. If he doesn't do the five-year gap, maybe there'll be a gap after the winds of winter to a dream of spring or something like that. I really don't like that he didn't age up the characters. Game of Thrones, the show, made a good choice in trying to do that. We also know that the rest of the Faceless Men like do have rules beyond what Jacken tells us. Like, is the idea that you, they cannot kill anyone they know. When we see them in their little council talking amongst themselves, they refuse to kill somebody because they say, I know that person. If you remember the Arya's coin video I made, a bunch of guys on the boat on the way to Bravos 
try to get Arya to remember their name. Why are they trying to do that? Because it's well known, apparently within Bravo C culture, that if a faceless man knows you personally, they can't kill you, which reinforces the fact that they already that they think Arya is a faceless man and they're trying to protect themselves. I have, yeah, I have not read the Mercy chapter, but I have listened to other people talk about it. Like I listened to History of Westeros talking about it last week. I do know generally what's in it, but I have not read it. So like to wrap this all up, what do the faceless men want? What are they really after? And taking together all the things we've talked about today, George's answers about him, his about them, the quotes he has about them. I am of the mind that I don't think that the faceless men have any kind of like grand sprawling Illuminati, like controlling the world style motivation behind them, that if they had one, it's already happened. And that was the doom of Valyria that, you know, they blew up, the they blew up the biggest empire in the world to essentially end the suffering they were inflicting on other people. And they more or less continue that on a smaller scale to the current day. George calls them a religious organization that they are death cult. I think there's very much in a mystery around them allows people to fill in like some really tinfoil theories about them. But yeah, I don't think George's answers really support that in a way. And that he essentially gave us like seven chapters of exposition about them. And you know what they didn't do? They never had any quote where there was like, We've been watching the thousand-eyed one, and he has a new wolf student. We have to keep our eyes on them, or the heart of winter is moving. There's dead moving beyond the wall. We got to keep our eyes on that. The faceless men in the in the chapters themselves are essentially like, oh yeah, we got another five assassination jobs. Who's gonna do it? Bill, Jack, uh, Bill, you got it. All right, cool. All right, who's next? Which who are we gonna have do this one? They're obviously training Arya. And they take assassination jobs like that's the whole idea with with Jack and that he's been hired by Euron. And I guess he doesn't care that it's Euron Greyjoy who hired them. I think I think they're unfortunately quite a bit less cool than I think most of the fandom wants them to be. But I would love I would love for George to explain exactly what Jacken was doing in the Black Cells. Why was he in King's Landing if he tied all these things together? It seems that he does understand that fans are kind of scratching their heads at them and they're like, what, what are you doing with them? What's the point here? And he's like, oh, I forgot to tell them. I forgot to put in the explanation for them. So I don't know. Is that a disappointing ending to a stream, basically? Well, I'm going to take a few more questions, but I, I have some patron questions and stuff like that I haven't gotten to. But yeah, that, that's kind of that's kind of where I land on that. They are cool. The face like Arya's training is awesome. And I like where they're what George is doing with her and what's going on. But ultimately, the story of Arya and the Faceless Men is not Arya completing a large a, a large piece of a massive puzzle the Faceless Men are about. It's more that Arya is the main the main part of that story, and the Faceless Men are supplementing her by giving her skills and training that George wants her to have for some reason going into the last two books. You know. Ari is the story of the faceless men, not the other way around. I think that's the best way of summarizing it. Yeah, great way stem. That's basically what they did. <laughs> that meeting was them essentially just like giving out the daily duties during a staff meeting. It, it's not that impressive. There's no there's no hint that they're doing anything more than that. It's just kind of like filling in the gaps, basically. Uh, so let's run through some patron questions I didn't get to. Maura Lee at the beginning, she said, Jackin's current at the Citadel. Fans thinks he's looking for a special book called Death of Dragons. If so, once he finds it, 
how do you think we'll use that book as far as Danny's dragons are concerned? I think it's definitely something to think about that what the Faceless Men will make of Daenerys, because if they didn't know about her already, they definitely know about her now from Sam talking about it in front of Jacken. So I imagine they're going to investigate Daenerys and figure out what the hell she's about, because they cannot allow the freehold to rise again. The dragon's coming back. But it's also important to note that the Targaryens existed as dragon lords for something like 150 years after the doom and the faceless men did not mass murder them so i think i think there's an assumption within the fandom that they are definitely going to try and kill danny and i don't think that's true it's less about dragons and valerians and more about suffering and mass abuse of people that they are against so as long as danny doesn't do those things i don't think they're going to be like gunning for her in particular streams streams not over hang on a second ten dollars from let me be great stream thank you Lemmy. appreciate it another question from mora she said how much longer will the faceless men want to train aria and what do they hope to gain from aria's training i they i think the faceless men will train aria for as long as she's willing to stay but what i think they're hoping to gain is another jacken that they're trying to make another super powerful assassin out of her because it seems like this 10-year-old girl is a prodigy for them. They're hoping that she's going to be the best faceless man ever. And that's, I don't think that's, that's just not going to work out, unfortunately. Um, from San Rixian, she asked in the Slack, she said, what do you think of Arya's involvement in the Battle of Winterfell will be like in Winds of Winter? Do you think the show got any of it right? Do you think we'll see something completely different? Will the super pack Ed Nymeria be involved? So there's definitely an idea that Arya is going to bring mercy to Lady Stoneheart, that she's going to be the one to kill her. If she comes back, I'm going to guess that Arya is going to go to Saltpans. But what will be her role in the Battle of Winterfell and to the Winds of Winter? She still has the people she wants to kill. It's I think Arya is one of those characters that's really hard to place for what she's doing in the rest of the story. Because what she's good at is pretending to be other people, spying, and killing other people. So. How do those, what do those skills serve for her going forwards? Stone, I think Stoneheart's going to do the Red Wedding 2.0, not Arya, but she is also a trained fighter. So I don't know. I didn't hate the idea that Arya would be the one to stop the others if there is a Night King or something like that. You know, she does have assassin skills and those sorts of things. So it does make some sense. George would obviously probably do it more elegantly, but it, it that's one of those big question marks for me because... In order to answer that, you have to be able to say, what was the point of sending Arya to become a faceless man? She's either going to kill a bunch of people or she's going to fight a bunch of people. Which people? Like, does the, does any of this make her particularly effective against the others? No, I don't think so. Like, they can't be tricked. That's their whole thing. Their servants are not human. They are undead whites. So I don't really know. Maybe she'll end up killing a whole bunch of people or she'll be spying on those. Like, maybe she'll be spying on Danny or... Cersei or something like that. I'm curious to see. I I would guess that not a lot of her Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring content was spoiled by the show. I think they got kind of the very bare bones idea of it that she's going to go back to Westeros and that she'll be important in some vague way with the Long Night. But she didn't really do anything in the Bells and the last and the last episode. So other than leave and go west of Westeros, that's kind of it. So I would look forward to that. Also, maybe something with Sandor. There's a lot of people that care about her. That would be interesting to see. Super Pack and I mean, Nymeria, they're probably going to, I would guess they're going to attack the phrase at some point. Another one from Denrixian, she says, will Arya become a full-fledged faceless man or she reject it and regain her Stark identity? I think the fact that she killed Darion, the, the singer from the Night's Watch, and that she basically did it for being a deserter of the Night's Watch, 
and that her pride as a northerner tells us that she is not going to become a full-fledged faceless man that she is still Arya stark and that she's not going to let that go her pull be a member of her pack her pull to become like an avenger of the starks is something that's so strong in her character that i don't think it's going anywhere yeah that's right cory freight they just used her as an invincible camera that rides in the bells yeah she didn't do anything there so I would guess that there's a lot of George's plans for her that have not been spoiled. Asasa K, she asked in the patron Slack, discuss other mentions of the Faceless Men we often forget about. Uh, do we hear about them in Duncan Egg or Fire and Blood? I think they're definitely in Fire and Blood. One of the suggestions is that the a Faceless Man killed Septon Moon. There's also a suggestion it may have been a shadow binder. I would guess that some of the convenient assassinations that happen around Jaharis... Jaharis might have been Faceless Men inspired, especially during the Dance of the Dragons. For instance, the idea that Old Town and the High Towers, or e or even Rhaenyra and Daemon, they are running out of money. They're running out of resources. I'm guessing some of them thought it'd be a lot easier if they're if the other side died. And there are quite a lot of suspicious deaths during the Dance and the rise of power for Jaharis, the Conciliator. So I am of the opinion he secretly had quite a lot more people killed than people realize faceless men makes perfect sense i forget who talked about it i think it was aziz he talked about during the Lyseni spring that the i forget the name of the family but they're a bunch of soc bankers all of a sudden die very quickly in suspicious circumstances so that would be my guess i don't think there are any faceless men in dunkinick though blood raven is not a faceless man although they overlap in terms of skills see here a guilty undertaker makes the point there seems to be a running theme with the stark kids at least the povs an offer of great power and all costs use your identity in our case literally becoming no one yeah that's one thing to keep an eye on as we go into the winds of winter but if you want to reread a feast for crows and dance with dragons one of the things that's very much a parallel for aria is bran they are going through the same kind of lessons. They are leveling up in a similar kind of way. They're, <clears throat> ooh, that was a bad one. You know, they're leveling up in a similar kind of way. So there's even weird connections between Bloodraven and the Kindly Man. But yes, you're right. There is a similar temptation of power happening to all the Starks. Maybe one will happen to John in the future. But it also happened with Sansa. She had to give up being Sansa Stark to be trained by Littlefinger. So. It's less magical, but it's a similar kind of thing. Yeah, tea time. I'm going to have a lot of tea. Oh, Sandra M on Twitter. She asked, I have a question for you regarding Faceless Man and Jacken slash Pate. If Pate is supposed to be Jacken, as is pretty much accepted by the fandom, where's his gold tooth and why is George go out of the way? Draw attention to the fact that it was missing. So when you put on the face, I think you also take on their teeth. I'm guessing that's part of the illusion. So I don't really think there's, there's much there. He just changed his appearance and that's kind of it. One face has a gold tooth, the other one doesn't. <clears throat> well, what kind of tea? A green tea with honey and ginger. And on Twitter, Grey Waste Tim. This will be the last one of the day because there's a Radio Westeros stream coming up in 45 minutes that I'm going to be on. So I need to I need to decompress and soothe my throat to get ready for that one. But Grey Waste Tim, one of my patrons, asked the doors of the House of Black and White. The white wood is made of weirwood. Do you think the black ebony wood is made from shade in the evening trees, ironwood? Wood from the Dark Forest or Kohor or some other unspecified Darkwood tree. I think it's said that it's made from ebony. This is one of those things about the Faceless Men that I think it's kind of misunderstood about them. When you look inside their inner sanctum, they have like a whole bunch of gods in a circle. And they have weirwood on their door and something about ebony. And I think people assume that these indicate that these underline like their place in some like large scale magical conspiracy. When I think it's kind of the opposite, where the fact that they have these things 
is because their belief in the many-faced God that all all gods in the world are essentially the same, the one they pray to. And so I don't think it's I don't think there's like a religious importance to the types of wood or the gods that are in there. And like if you look at some of the gods that are in there, there are literally some from Lovecraft. There's some from what's his name? The guy that wrote Conan the Barbarian. There's even some from George's other stories, like Bacalon, the Pale Child is there. Fiery Heart of Relore. Relore is actually a character from George's other books. So I think it's just his way of essentially physically representing the fact that the faceless men do believe that the many-faced God is all God at the same time. And it's not a belief in any particular one. But in terms of what the wood is, I would guess just ebony, that it's like, I think the reason to use weirwood is that not only is it white and it lasts forever, but it's expensive. And it seems to be the House of Black and White essentially showing off their wealth. Although I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no to the idea that it's shade of the evening trees. I would guess not Ironwood. That would be my guess anyway. Robert E. Howard, that's it. I actually wrote a quote about that earlier where George was laughing about the faceless man. He said, yeah, like, don't take those gods so seriously. Like, they're mostly just Easter eggs. It's just kind of trying to show off the idea of the many-faced god, not necessarily a plot point. If you like... He's, I think he was trying to say, don't analyze each face or weird thing about the House of Black and White in that way, because that's not the point anyway. All right. So I think that's about it. Oh, I have to give away a shirt. So after I end the stream, give me your craziest tinfoil in a comment for who might be a faceless man. After I end the stream, go to the comments. I'll pick someone at random. That's what we'll do. Your craziest, craziest tinfoil for who might be a, a faceless man. That'll be it. We'll get $20 or no, you get a free shirt from my thread. Hang on a second. In about 40 minutes from right now, I'll also be appearing live on Radio Westeros. So let me grab that, uh, that link for you guys. Uh, we'll be talking about Samuel Tarly, more about the faceless men, more about Jack and Hagar, Marwin the maid, Samuel himself, all that other kind of stuff. This, the document looks really good. Lady Gwyn and Yoke Boy have once again outdone themselves. I hope to be a small part of a great episode. So check that out. That'll be going live in 40 minutes. Yes. And if, again, if you want to win a t-shirt, leave a comment after I hit end stream. Give me your craziest goddamn tinfoil about who's a faceless man. Thanks everybody for spending this time with me. Slamming the like button. Like, share, subscribe, do all the things. Thanks for the PayPal donations and the super chats new patrons and all that stuff. And if you want to pay me back, the only thing you have to do is, as always, slam that like button, subscribe, share it to other people. And if you're listening to this on an audio playback, like on the Wit and Wisdom of Joe Magician, just leave me a review. I would appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you in a little bit on Radio Westeros. Goodbye for now.